Let's turn together to Lord's Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism, where the church confesses according to the Word of God and summarizes the doctrine of providence in the following way in questions and answers 27 and 28. What do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is his almighty and every present power, whereby as with his hand he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? We can be patient in adversity, be thankful in prosperity. And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father. For no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. After we listen to the proclamation of the gospel, let's respond to the singing of hymn 65, the stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, almost every day in one form or another, whether we realize it or not, we come face to face with what may be called the providence of God. And often we may not think of things that happen from out of that perspective, but nevertheless, it's there. For example, take what has been going on for quite some time in our world in this year 2020. It started already early in the year with the rise of COVID in various places, and before we knew it, in March, lockdown started and all kinds of restrictions happened. And then after that, things seemed to get better and we became a bit more optimistic and some of the restrictions were loosened. And of course, now we're once again in a situation where perhaps we became careless and there was a need for additional restrictions because of the growing number of COVID cases. And the result is that, of course, in various parts of the country, our hospitals are being stretched, especially the intensive care units in many care homes. There's also a great deal of panic and uncertainty. And added to that, we have a large growing number of doctors, nurses, care aides, and other people who don't know what the future holds, but they do know that they're very tired, very stressed out, and very, very fearful of what the future will bring. And so we are today in a rather tension-filled, uncertain type of situation. Will Christmas really be celebrated as we usually celebrate it? We don't know. And what will the year 2021 bring? More misery, more death, more sickness? We don't really know. And of course, in the midst of all of that, some people ask themselves, why? Why does all of this have to happen? And if you happen to be a Christian, then you turn your face to God and you ask the Lord, Lord, why? 
Why are you allowing this kind of thing to happen to our world and to turn our world, our lives, upside down and to fill them with such a huge measure of uncertainty and tension? And of course, these kind of questions, it only scratches the surface because there are many more questions in this life especially when it comes to dealing with life's setbacks and life's hurdles and, and life's big issues and problems. Why? Some people ask, why am I always sick? And, and why did my baby have to die? And, and why did I have to say goodbye to my husband so soon? And why is it that I seem to be suffering one blow in life after another? Why is all of this happening to me, and, and why is it perhaps not happening so much to others? And, and what about all the other stuff that goes on in the world, the, the hurricanes, and the earthquakes, and the tornadoes, and the devastation? And what about what happens in so many places in terms of all kinds of diseases, and all kinds of civil war, and unrest, and so forth? You see, there are and there is no end to the questions that we have about the things that are happening in the world. There's a sense in which our whys, why this, why that, never, never really end. And of course, in the midst of all of this, we do start to sometimes become somewhat depressed and despondent. And we ask perhaps this fundamental question, who is in control anyway? That's our theme this late afternoon. Who is in control anyway? And we're going to look at three things. First of all, the God who upholds all creation, the God who governs all circumstances, and the God who blesses all believers. So those three things, who is in control anyway? That's the big question of the day. Well, beloved, if you look back to Lord's Day 9 of the Heidelberg Catechism, there we heard the Heidelberger talk about God as the great creator, the great inventor, the great father. And this time we go a step further and we ask ourselves, well, what kind of God, what kind of creator, what kind of father is he? And actually, how active is he? How involved is he with creation, with this Earth, this solar system, this planet on which we are living, and, and how much and how well is he involved with our very own lives? What kind of a role does God play in our lives today? Now that kind of question or these questions deliver a variety of different answers. For one, for example, there is the answer of what you may call secularism, sometimes called evolution or atheism. And it simply denies the existence of God altogether and has, and denies that there even is a God. So here you have the most radical of all possible answers to our question, why ask God when God doesn't exist? There isn't any God. And because there isn't any God, there isn't any answer. So don't bother looking for anything. There is simply no God. Now it has to be said, if the polls are any indication, then most people can't quite adapt to that statement. They feel it's too extreme. 
And so some people say, well, no, there is a God. God does exist. But actually, this God who exists doesn't really care with what's happening to us here on earth. You know, once upon a time, he made everything. He set it all in motion. But then after a while, he got kind of tired of it. And he went off to explore another corner of the universe. He does his thing somewhere else. And one day he, he may just show up again and, and involve himself, but in the meantime, we people, we simply have to deal with an absentee God, and we need to make the best of our difficult and trying circumstances. That's our responsibility, our calling. Well, that too may not be totally satisfactory, and so there are some people who say no. God is involved in the world and in our lives, but God is involved in a very impersonal kind of way. You know, today we have the environmental movement, and there's nothing wrong with the environmental cause per se, but we have those extreme people in the movement who basically say that, that God has kind of merged with his creation and God is part of every cell, every molecule, every atom, be it in matter, in animal, in mineral, or human. And to ask God about the state of the world in which we are in is simply a useless exercise since he's part and parcel of everything that we see. And experience. God and creation are one. And this God doesn't answer our questions. And then finally, we also have those who say, no, there is a God, and he is involved. But he's only involved in certain things. Many years ago, I had a discussion with a colleague in another denomination or federation and he had a very simple answer to the problems of life. He basically said, all the good things that you experience in life, they come from God. And as for all the bad things in life, they come from the devil. God is light. The devil is darkness. So there's your answer. The kind of stuff we're experiencing today, COVID, and everything attached to it, from the devil. Now, of course, that's an answer. But the question is, how satisfactory an answer is it? Not only that, but that in turn raises the question, well, if, if that's how everything works, that God is responsible for the good and the devil is responsible for everything that's evil or everything that's painful, what kind of a God are we talking about? Are we not talking about a God who is very limited in terms of his powers, in terms of his abilities? A God who can only give us the good and doesn't know what to do with the evil and the wrong. Is he still almighty? What's so almighty about such a God? Now, beloved, to all of those kind of questions and positions, we need to ask the question, the proverbial question, what then does the Bible say? And what does the Bible teach about God and his relationship to our lives and to our world? 
And the answer that the scriptures give over and over again is that God, the God of the scriptures is the God of creation. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is very much involved in this life, in this world, in everything that happens. Even intimately so. And as a matter of fact, he's not just involved. He's essential to its ongoing life and existence. Scripture not only says God created the world, but Scripture teaches that God continues to maintain the world. Heidelberg Catechism captures all of this with the use of that word uphold. He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures. And if you want proof of that, go, for example, to what we read together in Psalm 104. There you have a psalm that spells out God's upholding of of his creation in a very detailed and particular kind of way. It spells out in in the many verbs that it uses. You know, God makes the clouds. He rides on the wind. He, He makes the waters flee. He makes the springs pour forth water. He gives water to the animals, the birds, and the mountains. He makes the grass to grow. He's responsible for the wine and the oil and the bread, and he feeds the lions. What does Psalm 104 give you but a, but a picture of how God takes care of his creation? You see, this God cannot be accused of indifference. This is not the God who is on a holiday somewhere lying in the sun in another part of the universe. His care is infinite. His attention to detail, even the smallest details, is astounding. And his concern for what he has made is heartwarming. Psalm 104, like so many other psalms and parts of Scripture, points to God's constant involvement with his handiwork. But of course, that's not all we learn from Scripture. We learn that God's involvement is more than just the involvement of God the Father. It also has to do with the involvement of God the Son because he's also drawn into the picture. You know, we read a moment ago from Hebrews chapter 1 where it says God made the universe through his Son. And second, that the Son sustains all things by his power. In Colossians chapter 1, we're told the same thing, that all things were created by Christ, for Christ. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Notice that expression, in him all things hold together. Christ, says Paul, inspired by the Spirit, Christ is like the glue of the universe. He holds it together. And so the idea that Hebrews and Colossians and other parts of Scripture conveys is that Christ not only creates, 
but he keeps it. His work of care is constant. It's all dependent on his power and on his presence. And you know, Psalm 104 confirms that. You know, it tells us that when God removes his daily care from his creation, bad things start to happen. Look at verse 29. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. In other words, when, when God hides himself, when he holds his breath, his sustaining power, his creation is in deep trouble. It starts to break apart. And ultimately it dies and returns to dust. You see, not only does scripture tell us that what happens when God holds or hides it also tells us what happens when God removes his restraining hand, so to speak. I think, for example, of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. There's an expression in Romans chapter 1 about God gave them up or God handed them over. And there the Apostle Paul is describing the case of people who are involved in gross immoralities. And, and God's reaction to such things is described as well. And it says that it's possible for people to cross the line of decency. And that when that happens, God sometimes hands them over. He gives them up. In other words, he removes the restraints and the safeguards and he lets mankind experience the ultimate consequence of his sin and rebellion. And how terrible and dreadful is that? And so, beloved, in light of all of that, how grateful we should be that our God continues to uphold and govern all things, to live in a world without God is to live an unlivable life. It is God, our Father, who through His Son continues to make our world and our lives livable every day. But you know, having said that does not mean, of course, that from time to time God does not put us to the test. Just because God is always there and God is always active with his power does not mean that he always makes things easy for us. And neither does he always make things easy for the world in which we live. You know, almost every day this planet of ours, if you look at it, is visited by one calamity or tragedy after another. And before the age of telephones, satellites, televisions, internet, we didn't hear so much about what was happening in the world, except sometimes weeks or months later we heard something. But you know, when stuff happens in this world, especially when ugly stuff happens in the world today, it takes only a few instances and, and it's appearing on our 
hard screen televisions in our living rooms, our family rooms. The world has shrunk. The media is everywhere. The stories are nonstop, good, bad, but mostly bad. And the news, have you noticed how depressing, how utterly depressing so much of the news is every day? You can hardly find a good story, an upbuilding story to tell. And as for man, if you ask him, well, man is quick to blame someone. He has to have someone to blame. And since he's never been very good at pointing the finger at himself, he invariably, if he has some sense of deity, he points his finger at God. And he says, God's to blame. God is all-powerful. He could have prevented this. He could have prevented COVID. He saw it coming. Why didn't he not stop it? And so the accusations go on and on. What we human beings so easily forget and conveniently overlook is that this world, Scripture says, has been broken by us, by you and I, by our forefathers. We have made this mess we are today experiencing the consequences of our fall into sin, of our acts of rebellion, defiance, and unbelief. And instead of looking at God, we should be wondering aloud, how is it still possible that we can even continue to live on this planet? How come that human society can still function, albeit with all of its setbacks and all of its problems? How is it that there is a creation left even to enjoy, and even if it is an enjoyment tampered by, or tempered by mosquitoes and black flies and hurricanes and avalanches and a host of other negatives? How is it that we can still get an education, make a living, get married, raise families, hold down jobs, go on vacations? And I would say to you, the answer, the only answer lies with God. And it lies fundamentally with God's patience, His forbearance. You know, we used to talk, or in some circles, they used to talk about God's common grace. And it was said that God's common grace is what makes this life still livable. These days, perhaps, we're a bit more careful because we realize the word grace doesn't really apply here because grace means God's unmerited favor. Grace is always used in Scripture in the context of salvation and redemption. But still, the point is that God keeps on governing. He remains in control. He's sovereign, sovereign when it comes to the good, the better, and the best. And He's sovereign also and there's the problem, and there's the difficulty when it comes to the bad, the worse, and the ugly. Notice the catechism applies God's government to rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, health and sickness, riches and poverty. 
to the positives and the negatives. In short, God guides and uses it all, the ups and even the downs of life. Now, as to exactly how and why he guides and uses it, that often we cannot answer. We, why does God allow COVID? Is COVID going to undermine our lives in 2021? We don't know. And there's a lot of other things we don't know. Why did God allow World War I to happen? What about World War II? What about the Holocaust? What about all this stuff that keeps on happening in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, and Syria, and Libya, and all those other countries of the world which look like basket cases to us? What are we supposed to do with all that misery? Where does that leave us? You know, it leaves unbelievers with untold questions and often with a lot of bitterness, a lot of finger-pointing and not too many answers at all. But you know, for believers, it should be a different story. We can't claim to have all the answers. We can't claim to look into the mind of God. But you know, there are in Scripture three fundamental lessons that we all need to learn when it comes to the difficulties of daily life. The first thing, the first thing is patience. I love that expression in Lord's Day 10, be patient in adversity. What do Christians do when they suffer? When they're caught in hardships and difficulties? The Catechism says Christians become patient. They keep on trusting God and reminding themselves of the fact that God is still working and working things out. Remember Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. In all things. It doesn't say God works for the good of those who love him in nice things only. No, in good things and bad things. In all things, God works for our good. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis? Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, he got a rough ride. To some extent, people might say, well, some of it was his own making when he talks about the dreams he had and how he rubs it in with his brothers and his father even. But still, I don't think he deserved to be sold into slavery. He didn't deserve to be put in prison in Egypt. He didn't deserve all the years and decades of misery that he experienced. But in the end, when he finally is reconciled to his brothers and to his father, what does he say? When he looks back at everything that happened, all the ups and downs, but especially the downs of his life, what does he say? He says, you people, you meant it for evil. 
That's what he says to his brothers. But God, God turned it into good. We need to understand history always works at two levels. The human level and the divine level. Human beings do one thing and they're motivated in different ways and sometimes in wrong ways. But God still uses all of these things to bring about his will and to bring it ultimately for our, our blessing. And you know, history, history is full of those kind of lessons if you start looking. I think of a, a lesson that comes from early American history. There was a, a native man by the name of Tisquantum. He's also known popularly as Sequanto. That's spelled S Q. U-A-N-T-O, Sequanto. You can look it up on Google. And he's from the Putescat tribe in New England. Now, this particular man, a native man, in 1680 or 1608 and there around, English traders came and they captured him and many of his tribe, and they carted them off to Spain. And there he and his compatriots were sold into slavery. Fortunately, Squanto was, was bought by a Spanish monk, we're told, who treated him very well and taught him the Christian faith. Eventually, he made his way to England, and there he worked in the stables, learned the language, and he had a master who sympathized with his situation and tried and promised to do everything he could to allow Sequanto one day to return back to North America. And it happened. It really happened. One day he made the perilous trip back to North America. But when he came to North America, he discovered that his entire tribe had been wiped out by an epidemic. Not COVID, most likely smallpox. And you say, what a... What a tragic end to a tale. First you get captured, you get brought to Europe, you get enslaved, you come back, and there's nothing to come back to. Talk about misery. But you know, it's not the end of the story. For the next year, the first ship with pilgrims arrived on the shores of America. And who was there to greet these pilgrims? Why... Sequanto was there, and he had learned the English language in Britain, and he was able to use it. But he did more than just speak to the pilgrims. William Bradford, the governor, wrote that he became a special instrument sent of God for our good. He showed us how to plant our corn, where to take fish and procure other commodities. He was also our pilot to bring us to unknown places and never left us, never left our side till he died. Would that early colony have survived without him? It's, history says, rather doubtful. But you see, there you have 
Another illustration of how God sometimes works in the lives of his children. He, he takes all of the misery that they experience, but in the end, he uses it for good. And so if you're a child of God, do not grow bitter during the hard days. Don't grow distrustful in days of adversity. Be patient. You don't know exactly what God has in store for you. But God promised that everything ultimately will work for your good. And you can hold him. Hold him to that. But then if the first response of us as believers should be one of patience, the second is one of thankfulness. The Catechism talks about being thankful in prosperity. Thankfully, not every day is filled with dark clouds and with misery. So, what are you supposed to do when the good days are here or when the good days come back? When you have happiness, health, wealth? Well, you should, the Catechism says, you should turn your face to God and give thanks. Don't grow Smug, by the way. Don't take it all for granted. Don't become conceited. No, continue to acknowledge the source of all your blessings. And of course, that sounds easy, doesn't it? It almost sounds kind of natural, kind of automatic. But nevertheless, you know, it's hardly that. Thankfulness is an attitude that's both learned and given. We need to apply ourselves to it and we need to ask God for it. And why do I say that? Because, you know, it strikes me that being sour, negative, complaining, discontent always seem to lie at hand. Do you ever listen to talk shows on the radio? Sometimes when I'm driving around, I'm listening to CKNW. And you know, when the people start to call in, there's usually one thing that they all have in common, and it's this innate human ability to complain. To complain no matter what. You may live in the best country in the world. You may live in the best province in the best country. You may have a roof over your head. You may have food in abundance in your cupboard and in your fridge. You may have opportunities unlimited. You may have freedoms galore. But in spite of all that, we are perhaps as a society more dissatisfied than ever before. And our blessings are in danger of drowning in a sea of complaint. Yes, and that kind of negativism is not just in the world. It's also present in the church. We take issue with this. We take issue with that. Sometimes we don't like what's happening in the church. Sometimes we don't like what's happening in the world. And all the while we can still exercise our freedoms. 
We can still serve. We can still witness. We can still learn. We can still educate our children. A little while back, there was a Christian from another world country, a place known for its chaos, its sickness, its poverty. And he remarked that you, you Christians in Canada are spoiled. Instead of counting your blessings, you always seem to be grumbling about something. You're always in opposition to something. Come to my country and learn again what it means to serve the Lord in hardship but in thankfulness. And of course, that's not to say there aren't any problems in the church or that there aren't any problems in the country. But it's a reminder that we need to put our, all these things in perspective. We need to keep on seeing the bigger picture. Complaint and grumbling and murmuring as the Israelites used to do so well should not become a disease in our lives which eats up our joy and devours our thankfulness. Beloved, be patient in adversity. Be thankful in prosperity. And one more thing, and the catechism according to Scripture reminds us of that as well, be confident. We can have a firm confidence, it says, in our faithful God and Father. Realize God is not only the one who makes the world, who governs the world and upholds the world, He's also the one who is leading it somewhere. And Scripture says He's leading it to a whole new era, a whole new age, a whole new existence. One day the drought and the barren years and the conflicts and the diseases and the poverty and the death will be no more. As Paul says in Romans 8, at present the creation is groaning. But as it also says in the book of Revelation, one day it will be rejoicing. Yes, and we need to keep our eyes on that day, and especially when we're suffering setback after setback and pain after pain and sorrow after sorrow, we need to keep on looking forward in hope, looking with the knowledge and the certainty that a better day is coming. For thankfully, God our Heavenly Father is not just in the creating and not just in the upholding and the governing business, I remind you he's also in the renovation and renewal business. One day soon, the creation will be renewed. It'll sparkle. And, and we will sparkle in it. It says in Revelation 21, Behold, I am making all things new. And Paul says, we shall shine like stars in the universe. 
And you and I, we need to keep our eye on that day. You know, Abraham, the father of believers, our father in faith, he was always looking forward as he lived his life with its ups and downs, always looking forward to that city which has foundations. And we should be doing the same. One day a new day will, bond, will dawn. We can live in hope. Even while we live in trouble and in heartache. We can live in hope. Because our God will never forget us or desert us. Amen.